You're listening to The Church, The Family of God by Gareth Forsey, part of our A City on a Hill series. For more audio content and resources, please visit newfrontierschurch.com. It's good to be together this morning. And we're starting a new series this week. Um, And it's a little bit different, so we're not going to be going through a book. We're going to be spending some time looking at the church. I have to admit, as I start this series that I am really biased. I am so biased because when I listen to stories like Carla just brought about the church in a place where basically prostitutes are gathering together because they've found the love of Jesus, I realize that's us too. That's us doesn't matter where we are on this planet. We're a people that have been brought together under the love of Jesus, and I count it as such an incredible privilege. So I have to say I am unashamedly biased because I love Jesus' church. So I apologize up front if I get a little bit excited about the church this morning because I get to talk about it. But before we start, I have a question for you. Who here knows how this tool works? Anyone got any ideas? It's bronze. It has protruding thumb screws. It's about 90 years old. It's 10 inches long. I could spend tons of time describing it. I could talk about the little edges around there. I could talk about if we flip it over. It has a slightly different sheen on the other side. But I'm guessing that many people in here would start to get very frustrated very quickly because to understand how it works, you really need to know what it's for. So, is it a gas discharge analyzer? Is it a welding torch flint lighter, which is probably, I think, where you were going, Cindy? Is it a paint striper? Is it a shotgun shell reloading tool? Or is it an oxyhydrogen lamp? This morning, (laughs) ignoring Trevor, (laughs) this morning, before we talk about what the church is, I'd like to set a little bit of context because I think it will help us to relieve a little of the frustration if we focus on what it is here to do first. And I'm not going to tell you if you were right. The word church in New Testament Greek is ecclesia, which literally means called out community. The church is the community that has been called out and separated to follow Jesus together. If you like, we're his disciples. We are Jesus's called out community. So what's this called out community to do? What are we here for? What's it about? Well, you know, it's really interesting because Jesus himself said very little about the church. But he did speak a lot about his purpose and the purpose he has for his disciples. He came with a message about the good news of the kingdom of God. 
the very first words that Mark attributes to Jesus are him saying and proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. Take a look at Mark 1 verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And both Matthew and Mark conclude their Gospels with Jesus' commission to take this good news of the kingdom to all of creation. So what is the good news? What is this good news? Psalm 103 verse 19 tells us, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. God is king over the universe. And the good news is that if we turn to his son Jesus, the life God intended for us under his rule and blessing is extended to us. This is the relationship we see God originally put in place for mankind in, in creation. And it's what God is restoring for us. This is actually the big story of the Bible. It's what it's all about. It's what it's telling us. And through the church, we get to be a part of it. And this is no small thing that we've been called to. As believers, we are, as Graham Goldsworthy describes it, a people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. God's kingdom has arrived, but it has not yet been revealed in all its fullness. Ian spoke about this in December, and Sue reminded us a couple of weeks ago that we are living in the time between two advents. In the incarnation, so that's when Jesus came in the flesh, Jesus announced the arrival of this kingdom of God. That was the first advent. And he's going to consummate the whole of history on his return in the second advent. And what we have already received in Christ is amazing. But it is only a taste it's only a taste because during this in-between time, we have been commissioned to be his representatives, to announce the kingdom of God to the world, to point people to him, to make disciples. In other words, the great commission is our commission. And we accomplish all of this through the church. The kingdom of God creates the purpose for the church. Last night we had dinner with David and Elena and one of the questions that David asked me was, so what's the most important book to you? Like what's your favorite book of all time? And I'm thinking, well, it's the Bible? Uh, and, uh, is that what you mean? And he said, no, 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 I, I know that apart from the Bible. I said, okay, well, sort of here and here, but what's your favorite book? And I think it was really hard, but I was thinking about it afterwards. I was thinking about, well, what's a book that's been really impactful on me? And I have to say, it's this one I'm going to quote from right now, and it's called The Gospel of the Kingdom by a guy called George Eldon Ladd. And he said this, he explained the kingdom of God this way. The church is the fellowship of disciples of Jesus who've received the life of the kingdom and are dedicated to the task of preaching the gospel in the kingdom in the, in the world. The kingdom of God is working in the world through the disciples of Jesus Christ who have surrendered to the demand of the kingdom and constitute the new people of God, the church. 
The kingdom of God has invaded the realm of Satan in the person and mission of Christ to deliver men from the bondage of darkness and the conflict between the kingdom of God and the powers of darkness continues as the church bears the good news of God's kingdom to the nations of the earth. I can remember as a young Christian when I first read those words and I was like, man, we have been called to something massive. God's church isn't just this group of people here. We've been called into something enormous, which is to carry on the mission of what Jesus came to do to restore mankind to God. That is huge. We've received the life of the kingdom, and our purpose is to preach the good news of that kingdom in the world. So the kingdom of God is at work in each and every one of us. We are Christ's ambassadors. We're his representatives. We're the ones through whom God is revealing his kingdom in the world. Paul said, and let's let the Bible speak for itself on this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I wanted to start my talk today by establishing the purpose for the church. So we really understand why God created the church as we explore the metaphors that define it. And this is important because sometimes we can get so focused on like looking at all the different attributes of what something is without really understanding what it's for. And as you discovered earlier this morning, that gets pretty frustrating pretty quickly. God established the church for a very clear purpose, and we need to keep our focus on that as we now turn to discuss it. But before I get there, I have one other thing that I do want to add, and I think it's a really important one. The church is not on this earth somehow desperately holding on until our Savior sweeps in and rescues us from destruction. When you hear the story that Carla brought, you realize the church can't be that because they're bringing light into darkness. They're transforming the darkness into light. And that's the commission we all have. The church has a glorious and wonderful future. We've been chosen by God to participate with him in seeing his mission fulfilled on the earth. We have the privilege of being part of his glorious purpose in seeing mankind restored to his and her creator. And that should be the starting point for everything. The church's success is not down to us. Hallelujah. Thank goodness for that. We aren't in some dualistic battle with evil that we may or may not win. Jesus has already done everything necessary for victory. Now, that doesn't mean the battle won't be tough. 
that doesn't mean we don't face huge obstacles. But I want to tell you, our God is huger. The enemy has been, I know I made that up. The enemy has been defeated, but you'll Google it later, you'll find it. Um, We are on the winning team. The church has a wonderful and glorious future, bringing light into the darkness and witnessing his kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' prayer is being answered through his beautiful, wonderful church. Now, the Bible never actually defines what the church is. Instead, it uses a number of different metaphors to describe what it's like. And scholars that are interested in this kind of thing have discovered and identified more than a hundred metaphors in the New Testament that describe different aspects of the church. And I'd like to take some time to take you through them all this morning. It's a joke. Okay, you can laugh, that was a joke. (laughs) But now, I really want to focus on a few of them as we get into this this morning. So here are a few examples of who we are as the church. We're God's household. We're his family. We're a temple. We're branches of an olive tree. We're branches of a vine. We're lights. We're a city on a hill. We're a bride. We're a body. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're God's special possession. Those prostitutes in Mumbai are God's special possession. That's how he thinks about the marginalized. That's how he thinks about those that others would discard. So no one here should ever feel anything other than a cherished possession of God. That's how he sees us. This morning, I want to focus on the metaphor that the New Testament writers focus on the most when they describe the church. The church as the family of God. God's household. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, The household of God, which is the church of the living God. God declares his kingdom to the world through his family. We are members of his household. And if I can put it this way, the kingdom is our family business. Now, we were born individually. I know that sounds really obvious. Every single one of us is unique. And as the psalmist said, each one of us was fearfully and wonderfully made. We were born again in the same way, each one of us individually responding to God's call on our lives. But just as we were born into a natural family, so we are born again into the family of God, into his household. And above all other metaphors, the New Testament writers most often picture the church in this way. Robert Banks said, so numerous are these and so frequently do they appear that the comparison of the Christian community with a family must be regarded as the most significant metaphorical usage of all. More than any of the other images utilized by Paul, it reveals the essence of his thinking about community. Jesus called, think about it, Jesus called his disciples, his brothers. He referred to those that followed him, doing the Father's will as his brother's sister and his mother. In his letters, 
Paul refers to his addressees as brothers and sisters at least 90 times. In fact, when speaking of the church in terms of brothers or sisters or brethren, it occurs more than 250 times in the New Testament. Paul uses familial terms when he writes about the members of the church. He says, we've been adopted as sons. He says, we're members of God's household. We're children of God. We're heirs of God. One of the challenges we have when we think about the church as family is that many of us don't come from healthy, natural families. Our families may be messed up, damaged, dysfunctional. And even those that do come from strong, healthy families, we can understand family in 21st century terms rather than the terms that Paul and the others would have been writing about and thinking about when they had that metaphor in mind. The first century Palestinian world was a multicultural melting pot. It was strongly influenced by Rome and Greece and also by Jewish tradition. Wealthy household heads led extended families through a system of patronage whereby slaves and relatives served and supported their patron who provided for their needs. And this extended to the point that civic and family responsibilities were required. They were expected culturally, and they were actually enshrined in Roman law. So these households looked very, very different from what we today would consider to be a family. Roman households included both blood relatives under the patronage of the head of the family, as well as slaves who might make up 80% of the member of the family. And much of the life of this family was around the commerce that was needed to keep the family thriving and to keep the household moving forward. This commerce involved both men and women, as well as children and the household slaves. The father was the head of the household and the patron. His wife was held in similar honor. A wealthy wife would have been recognized as a patron to the remaining household including the slaves and all the extended family members. And it was into this structure that Paul, John, and Peter were speaking when they talk about God's household. And I'd like us to keep that in mind as we think about God's household this morning. And I have four things that I would like us to consider this morning as we think about what does it mean to be the household of God. And to make it really easy for us to remember, they all start with the letter R. So let's get into the first one, rooted in creation. The idea of God's people being a family wasn't something that the New Testament writers made up. They didn't just think, oh, that's a really good idea. Let's, let's, let's call the church a family. No, it's actually rooted right back in God's original purpose for mankind in creation itself. It's a central part of the Bible's big story that I mentioned earlier. And it's a reflection of God's own triune nature. Take a look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That creative act in Genesis 1.27 tells us that the irreducible minimum unit in Scripture is the family. 
When a man and woman come together in marriage, they become one flesh, and together they reflect the image of God. When challenged by religious leaders about divorce, Jesus directly linked the creation story with God's purpose in marriage. In creation, God determined it was not good for the man to be alone, and so he made a helper for him. He created a woman from the side of the man, and quoting Genesis 2, Jesus explained that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and becomes united to his flesh, to his wife. They become one flesh. So the creation story is framed around humankind, around the basic family unit, created to together serve God in his creation, to extend it and to make it better. In other words, in order to reflect his image, God created a family. Just as all life was made to reproduce after its own kind, the Genesis story tells us that God patterned his family after himself. And so that's the meaning of Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God is the eternal father of the Son, who together with the Holy Spirit are one indivisible God. John, sorry, John 17.24 says that God the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And Ephesians 3.15 explains that all human family relationships originate from that fatherhood of God. So the creation of humanity is an expression of Father God's desire to extend his familial love for his Son to new sons and daughters. That's us. Paul also says in Ephesians 5 that marriage, the starting point for a human family, points to something even more grand and glorious, which is Christ and the church. We're part of God's family. We're married to Christ, if you like, and God is our Father. This is huge. Because what that means is the church is not primarily an institution or a group of people who happen to believe the same thing about God. It's God's family. It's his household. The roots that we have are rooted into God himself, into his nature, into his image, and into his plan for mankind. And that means this church family, all of us here, we're part of that plan God has for mankind, each and every one of us. And you were called to be a part of that family. God is our father and we are sons and daughters in his family. We're brothers and sisters. We're heirs together of his family. And we serve in the family business, which is the kingdom of God. So secondly, as children in God's family, the primary way we relate to one another is therefore as siblings. Before we are co-workers or colleagues or even friends, we are brothers and sisters. And just as the relationship between the father and son are based on the familial love within the Trinity, the primary way we work together, we relate together in the church, is through that familial love for one another. Jesus prayed in John 17 that the love the father has for him would be in us. 
This love is focused on serving, on seeking the best for one another, that we might grow and flourish as a healthy family, reflecting back that same love that God has for us. And this has a huge impact on how the church operates. There is so much that I could unpack here, but I just want to focus on two things this morning. First, it impacts the way the church is led. Church leadership is much less about directing and managing like a CEO might manage and lead a company and more about fathering and mothering and being brothers and sisters to one another, serving, guiding, discipling the church family so it grows, matures, and flourishes, producing growing, healthy church family members. Paul often used the language of parenting with the churches he served. He saw himself as a father to the church in Corinth. He said he cared for the Thessalonian church like a nursing mother, as well as comforting and urging the church to live lives worthy as of God, much as a father would with his children. And this helps us to understand the need for both fathering and mothering in a healthy family if it's to reproduce and grow. I love this quote from writer and Bible teacher Jen Wilkin. When God said it wasn't good for man to be alone, he didn't send him an elder board. He sent him a wife, reminding us never to forget the importance of female voices in the leadership of our churches, rooted right back to creation itself. That doesn't mean we abandon the role of elders in the church. The church is clear that the church needs elders, but we also need moms and sisters as well as fathers and brothers, if we're going to grow up healthy. I've included this point this morning because I'm not sure this is an area where we've done a particularly good job. I don't know if we've created enough room for the whole family to flourish or be fruitful, or whether we've favored or empowered one part of the family over another. And that's why we're taking time out right now as a church to review our approach in this area and why I am grateful and I have to say deeply humbled by the responses that we have received over the last couple of weeks as we've sought input and feedback into a paper that we produce. Um, deeply, deeply humbled uh, by the candor, the feedback, uh, the thoughtfulness that has gone into the folk that have responded. Um, we've sought to ask ourselves difficult and challenging questions because that's what families do. They're real and authentic with one another. That's why we ask these questions of each other because we want to walk together as a flourishing family. And you know, it's not just in leading. A huge part of healthy relationships in family life is in the shared responsibilities to disciple each other in Titus, Paul talks actually about older women teaching and helping and developing younger women. And these relationships are not designed or defined organizationally. It's organic. They're about nurturing and life-giving. They're about grace and truth. And I've actually asked Bev 
to come and share her experience. Bev and Alka lead our youth group, and one of the things that I have uh, experienced with Bev as, as, as I work with them on youth group is her passion for the youth. And I asked her, well, where did that come from? This is what she had to say. I've been a part of this church for my whole life. My parents were part of the team that planted this church. So growing up in the church routine, sorry, growing up, the church routine was very normal. And I actually loved coming to Sunday morning meetings and sitting in with adults at the small group gatherings that my parents hosted at our church, at our house every week. Jesus revealed himself to me at a really young age, when I was five years old. And I loved to talk to him and learn how to hear when he spoke to me. I couldn't wait to turn 12 so that I was old enough to go to youth group. At the time, the youth group was led by Henry and Lissy Cooley. By the way, they started the youth group and served in that role for 12 years. What an investment. And I remember when I was 12 and Marzi, now Leone, was 17 when she started to take me under her wing. She'd invite me out for an ice cream or on a walk and we'd just chat about what was going on in our lives and about God. Not only did I feel so special that an older kid initiated hanging out with me, but I think that friendship and having Marzi as an example was hugely instrumental in keeping me chasing after God. When I was in my mid-teens, Rachel, now Engelman, started doing the same and was a mentor I could look up to and ask the hard life and faith questions. Looking back, I'm so thankful that she reached out and took an interest in me because I don't think she was even an official youth leader. Plus, since she was in college at the time, I got to hang out with her on campus, which made me feel super cool as a young high school kid. A few years later, I was so blessed to have two entirely awesome, slightly changed it from last time, older women in the church <laughs> disciple me, Patty DeSmith and Carla Rogers. I'm, sure if, I'm not sure if they reached out or if I bugged them until they agreed to meet up with me for coffee, but those two powerhouse women of God kept me grounded through my college years and are still consistent friends who keep me accountable now. I'm confident that having these instrumental women and a few others that I didn't mention as sisters and aunts in my church family are a huge reason why I've been so excited to follow Jesus along with them. And I think they're also the reason why I'm excited to build into the teenagers of this church. Now I'm a youth leader here along with four other awesome young people and I'm so excited for the opportunity to encourage the youth and build into them in the way that I was built into when I was their age. I'm so passionate about pushing them towards God because I know that the years being a teenager are so crucial and I want them to fully benefit from the family of God, meaning that it's not just their individual relationship with God that's so incredible, but also that they gain brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles in Christ and get to learn from them. I feel so honored to be able to speak into their lives, and sometimes it's intimidating because I so badly want them to know the fullness of how valuable and loved by God they are and how much of an adventure it is to follow Jesus. But the cool thing is that it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who gives faith, and I just get to play a little part and be used by him. Thanks, Bev, and I'm so glad you changed what you said about Carla and Patty because they came to see me afterwards, you know. <laughs> now, isn't it amazing how just organically a person's life is affected when other people invest in them 
and choose to participate in their life. And we are so blessed to have these youth leaders who are doing the same thing for our kids now. In, in our, and I know there's younger kids can't wait to get into youth group so they can be part of that as well. But I want to challenge us this morning, every single one of us, whether we've been following Jesus for 50 minutes or 50 years, who are you investing your life in today? Who are you discipling? Who are you reaching out to that you can make a difference in their life? And I want to encourage you. Don't, I don't want anyone to feel guilty. Oh, my goodness, I'm not. I want to encourage you to think, start thinking that way. There are other people who will benefit if you invest your life in them. And that doesn't ma matter if you're 15 or you're 50. There are always going to be younger brothers and sisters. There are going to be siblings that we can invest our lives in that will change their lives. And we'll see more Bevs, more Alkas, more of the other leaders emerging in so many different spheres. And it's such an incredible blessing. I love when I get to go to youth group every now just to see these guys operating. So I kind of wish my kids were young enough again to go back to youth group because it's, it's so cool to see them doing it. But that's the challenge for each and every one of us to take away from here today. What are we doing to invest in our siblings' lives that we might put something of a deposit of what God has done in us in them so that they can grow into the things we've seen. Thirdly, Cigna did a study on the impact on healthcare last year of loneliness in the United States. 54% of people said they felt like no one actually knows them well. 40% said they lack companionship and that relationships aren't meaningful and that they feel isolated. That's not one in 10. That's not one in five. That's four out of 10 people, nearly half of the people in our nation, if it's a representative study, feel isolated, don't have meaningful relationships. Interestingly, the report found that those who spend time with family are less lonely are more able to be part of a friendship group and are more able to find companionship when they need it. What a privilege we have to be part of God's family. It's incredible when you see what the nation says about loneliness and yet we get to be part of this incredible family. But it's not just us. Every human being was made in the image of God and imbued with endless dignity and eternal worth. Psalm 68 verses 5 to 6 tells us that God is a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows and he sets the lonely in families. Just like we don't get to choose our natural family, we don't get to choose our church family either. We've all probably got brothers and sisters or aunts and uncles that we wouldn't hang out with if we weren't related. Maybe they're a little strange or a little different. Or maybe they're downright rude and ignorant. But they're still our family. When we were church planning in Connecticut a number of years ago, God brought a man to us who had spent much of his life on the streets and in and out of rehab. And I'm going to call him Mike so that if he ever listens to this, uh, I don't embarrass him uh, by using his real name because I, I, I'm still in regular contact with him. 
Mike had been free of drugs and alcohol for about seven years when we first bumped into him. But the years of misuse had taken their toll on both his brain and his bodily function. He was incontinent and he struggled with a number of different medical challenges. And he's actually about six months older than me. So he's not, he's a young guy. <laughs> Sometimes he would have problems in our gatherings. And we were a church plant, so we were meeting in homes. And there would be times after the meeting, after the get-together, when we would have to go and clean up the chair and the area around where he had been sitting. Trying to do it in a way that didn't undermine his dignity. After coming along for a while, he met Jesus in an incredibly powerful way. He was radically saved. And the impact on his life was pretty much immediate and quite profound. I can remember him saying things and like this, and just this just gives you a perspective of the kind of life this guy had to lead. When someone used to attack me on the street, the old Mike would fight back and yell obscenities at them. The new Mike prays for them. I had the privilege of taking Mike through our foundation class. This six-week class took us about a year to go through. But I have to say, I was undone by his simple faith, by his love for Jesus. And my background before I came into the church, as many of you know, was in corporate. I was a business guy. And I met with all kinds of people that had all these amazing stories about things that they did and powerful people and all that kind of stuff. But meeting Mike... And spending time with him was so humbling. It taught me more lessons than I think I'd ever learned on just about anything else. And it made me see that Jesus has so much time and care for the least of these. In our hurry to build church, let's not rush past the marginalized, the damaged, the lonely they may just be the most important parts of our family in God's eyes. In his book about church community, Life Together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer recognized the incredible privilege of being part of the family of believers and our resulting obligation to include the weak and insignificant. He said this, he said, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door. Bonhoeffer was persecuted and ultimately martyred by the Nazis for his faith. And he was often separated from his Christian family. And so he recognized the incredible privilege it is to be part of a community of believers. And I want to encourage us this morning, let's not let the demands of our culture rob us of experiencing that incredible privilege of Christian community and of meeting together. As the, writers to the, he as the writer to the Hebrew says, let's not give up meeting together. 
I want to encourage you to cultivate relationships in our church family, doing whatever you can to participate in community group, in youth group, in the other things that we do to share life together. Don't exclude yourself from those things. It is such an important part of the privilege of being a Christian believer. I've been blown away this month by how many have come on a Wednesday night to join us in what I have so loved sharing together in worship and prayer as we've gathered Wednesday evenings. And I just want to encourage you, if you can, please be there because it is such an honor to gather together as Jesus' church. The Nazis brutally destroyed so many damaged and marginalized people Now, we don't face such evil destruction, at least not in the West, but there are so many disconnected, lonely, and excluded people in our culture. That's why things like ACT 2, which is our program for those facing life-controlling issues and to promote emotional health, are so important. And I'm delighted that we've got 21 people from our church that have registered and are participating in getting trained as mentors in that program. 21 people. It's amazing how many people are giving their time in order to serve those that are in challenged places. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for participating in that. And I want to encourage us all to get engaged in things where we can share our lives with the damaged, with the broken, because that's the message of bringing them into his family. And finally reproducing its kind. My final point this morning, healthy families reproduce and grow. Whenever Ray and I do pre-marriage counseling, there is one area where we very rarely have to encourage the young-to-be-married couple to want to do and to want to know about. Finance. They (laughs) love the session. I'm not joking. We are pre-wired to want to reproduce. It's not something that generally we struggle to want to do. But that is not some quirk of nature. As I mentioned earlier, it's actually at the root of God's original purpose for mankind. The Bible talks a lot and spends huge significance on sex and reproduction. In a fascinating and and really insightful talk last year on the Genesis account of creation at the Think Theology Conference in in, in London, um, Alistair Roberts, who's a theologian, and I really would encourage you to um, watch his talk on this, which is why I included the the link at the bottom. He said this, Scripture pays a lot of attention and gives a great deal of significance to things we find it awkward to talk about, such as... And at this point, Roberts goes on to describe in some detail the Bible's focus on genitals, wombs, and other elements of human reproduction that I cannot possibly talk about this morning while remaining PG. I know I feel really awkward speaking about these things, but the Bible seems to relish its focus on the specificity of human fertility. And that's because, as Roberts goes on to say, God's creation is being continued in us, forming and filling, being fruitful and multiplying. It's fundamental to our original commission from God. 
His blessing comes from us being fruitful, reproducing our kind and filling the earth. If we don't reproduce, our kind will die out. But it's fundamental to the Great Commission too, to make disciples of all the nations, to reproduce our church family so God's kingdom is extended to the ends of the earth. So I'd like to close this morning with an appeal to us to reconsider the importance of the Great Commission. It underpins the entire purpose for which the church exists. As Ladd said, we have received the life of the kingdom of God and are dedicated to the task of preaching the gospel of the kingdom in the world to the nations and to our neighbors. It demands that we reorient our lives so we reproduce ourselves in each other and in our communities. So I want to ask us as we leave here this morning to think about what can we do to be reproducing ourselves in each other and in our communities. And after all, it shouldn't be a hard thing to think about.